at the end of the day, you can't fight for social justice in Detroit if you're not an optimist, despite the challenges. But you also have to be a realist. And I think what abandonment is sort of a wake-up call uh, that says, particularly in cities like Detroit, you probably have to go through a phase of self-help, self-analysis, and, 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 and political consciousness building to build political power uh, at the same time that you're trying to find allies uh, in different parts and, and certainly trying to build bridges. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, which is the second installment of our civic engagement series produced in collaboration with the Haas Institute's Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project. And today we're going to try a slightly different format. We'll be talking with two experts from Detroit about the issue of abandonment or the lived reality of many Detroiters that political and economic leaders have left them behind. And we'll talk about the role of civic engagement work to respond to this abandonment in the areas of politics, housing, and economic development. But to facilitate the discussion will be my colleague, Josh Clark, who is a political participation analyst and lead researcher for the Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project here at the Institute. So thank you, Josh, for leading this episode today. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having uh, having us on Who Belongs. So you'll be interviewing our two guests who are on the line from Detroit, Peter Hammer and Amina Kirk, who have been working in a variety of capacities for equitable development and racial justice in Detroit for many years. Uh, so now I'll hand it over to you to more formally introduce our guests and lead today's discussion. Thanks again, Mark. Um, So today um, we'll be joined by Peter Hammer, who is a professor of law and the director of the Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights at Wayne State University Law School. Um, The Keith Center runs the Detroit Equity Action Lab, uh, the purpose of which is to address structural racism in Detroit. And um, our second guest is Amina Kirk, um, who is the senior legal and policy advocate and organizer with Detroit People's Platform, a racial and economic justice organization. Um, Amina is an affordable housing activist and earned her JD and master's in urban planning at the University of Michigan. So um, thank you very much Amina and Peter for joining us uh, remotely. We're happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so our guests make the case that um, traditional forms of voter and civic engagement will have limited effectiveness in Detroit and that one of the biggest reasons for this is the phenomenon of abandonment. They say that abandonment is a real and widespread issue in the city's neighborhoods. And um, while Detroit may be an acute example of the phenomenon of abandonment, they also note that there are lessons that can be learned uh, from Detroit and from their work that would benefit civic engagement organizations and the funding community and wider ecosystem that support them in different parts of the country. Um, And to help these, these actors to think differently about what work for broad participation should actually involve. So I wanted to start um, by just uh, giving Peter and Amina an opportunity to each say a bit about what they mean when they talk about abandonment. Um, What is abandonment and how do you identify it? Um, Peter, I I first heard you speak on this subject, so maybe we'll start with you for this question. Thanks, Josh. When we think about abandonment at the key center in the deal, we start with a framework of, of spatial structural racism. Uh, and if you did opportunity mapping in southeast Michigan, you could actually see entire geopolitical boundaries of, of Pontiac and most of Detroit uh, from outer space as, as opportunity deserts. 
Uh, and when I say opportunity deserts, what I'm really talking about are the social, political, and economic institutions that are necessary to create opportunity. Uh, and if you overlay racial demographics on top of opportunity, you find that this region is segregated not just by wealth and opportunity, uh, but by race, wealth, and opportunity. And, and that's our notion of, of spatial structural racism. So now what does it mean to have an absence of opportunity? And we have to start seeing things that are not there. And this is where the notion of abandonment gets folded in. Uh, you don't have uh, a regional market, right? There's no regional housing market. There's no regional transportation market. There's no regional food market. There's no regional jobs market. Uh, and there's an absence of political market. So this notion of political and economic markets really have to be thought of, of, of in conjunction. Uh, and what you've had over time is a reproduction of this racialized space and this abandonment. Fifty years ago, you would have had segregated space inside the city of Detroit. Now what has happened through a period of, of, of white flight uh, and, and transportation and housing policy is the reproduction of that racialized space uh, almost at a citywide level. Uh, and one implication when you start drilling down to the neighborhoods is not only are the neighborhoods not connected to the regional economy, oftentimes the neighborhoods around the city are not even connected to each other. So what we're trying to lift up is this notion uh, of the absence of these institutions to create opportunity, this political and economic abandonment of citizens in Detroit, and then imagining what that means for civic engagement. Great. Thank you. Thank you for offering uh, those, those words about how you diagnose this phenomenon. Um, Amina, I wondered if you wanted to um, add anything further about um, you know, how, how you're thinking about um, the issue of abandonment and how, how it's identified what it is in Detroit? Uh, I don't think, um, I think Peter really, really words it perfectly. And um, I will say that the way I think about it in my work, um, and it, it really does m mirror what Peter has already said, is that um, the absence of those markets is part of abandonment. And then also the situation when I think about policy is that um, abandonment is present where the environment, where the markets exist, where abandonment is present, um, has involved such that the, the spatial structural racism has been operationalized and is now an essential component of the successful functioning of the markets outside of the abandoned uh, geographic area. Great. Thank you for that. Um, Amina, I wonder if I could um, ask you to speak a little bit to how this translates into a lived reality or um, shapes a worldview of residents in the neighborhoods that we're discussing. Um, in, in your organizing work, um, in, in the work that you've done in the city, what do we know about the way that life prospects and possibilities um, or, or people's sense of what their options are are shaped um, through these structural failures that um, you've, you've both described so well? I definitely think that one of the essential characteristics that, and how it shows up in residents' lives is the disempowerment that abandonment can have over residents' sense of agency and, um, and power over how their lives function. Uh, Detroit initially, uh, in its past, had a very engaged uh, citizenry, particularly its black residents. And so we had political engagement and social engagement. Um, residents band together uh, in 1967 to protest police brutality and economic and social exclusion. Um, there were also union reforms that took place in the 60s um, when black residents in the automotive factories came together because they were not being included 
um, and all that unions have to offer and help to get some union reforms on the books. I mean, we also have political will where residents uh, elected the first black mayor in Coleman at Young um, after the rebellion. And there's just a very strong community um, community network, social network, uh, labor networks, um, neighborhood networks that existed. Um, and over the past decades, as we've seen the abandonment that has taken root in Detroit, we've seen the dismantling of these networks, and that has dis- also disempowered residents politically and economically. So economic opportunities simply do not exist in the city for the average resident. We are a majority black city. Um, and yet we see that most of our residents have to commute out into the suburbs because that is where the economic opportunities exist. We see that the education system has been completely dismantled, wherein residents um, are, have to go to private schools if they're looking for, for uh, quality education. And the disempowerment uh, comes because they, they have been so removed from decision-making intentionally and even when they are organizing themselves to participate, we still see a strong struggle against allowing that voice to have any any true power. And so you can see our residents become disillusioned where they are not participating um, economically or politically because when they attempt to, it does not have an impact. And this has gone, over, gone on for such a long time that we certainly see um, that residents have completely removed themselves from those, from those processes in some instances. There is still a strong vein of that organizing spirit um, and that fighting spirit, and we see that in our grassroots organizations and our community organizations. However, the strong culture that was pervasive in the city uh, prior to the phenomenon that we're discussing here today um, has definitely been weakened. Right. So it sounds like this this networked character um, that used to be, you know, alive and well in neighborhoods when folks were able to, you know, work maybe maybe not in their home neighborhoods, but closer uh, to, to have their kids attend neighborhood schools, you know, that that creates these sort of dense social ties. Right. Absolutely. It, it, it creates the social fabric of communities that are necessary for any healthy urban area. And so we have unhealthy urban areas, and we have residents that have um, continued to make a life there, but the situation is that it simply isn't. We don't have healthy, vibrant communities. Um, And then we have uh, the new generation of residents, if they are not familiar with the past history, um, there are two different kind of uh, perspectives that residents can internalize. And one is that this is the way it's always been. Um, the communities have always been uh, economically and politically isolated and um, and disenfranchised, and so there's no point in engaging with uh, the political or economic systems because there's never been anything beneficial there for us. And then there's also the another um, another perspective when people are unfamiliar with the past history of, of the way things worked before abandonment, um, and that is that the community and the residents that are there um, they are the reason that abandonment occurred. And so, therefore, there's no reason to try to um, have any influence economically or politically if you see that your very, your participation and your presence were actually part of the motivating factor that caused abandonment. Okay, that's, that's actually a great segue to the next uh, kind of set of questions that I wanted to hear from you and Peter about, which is to, to move sort of um, a, a little bit more directly into this question of, you know, how, how abandonment influences folks' willingness um, to become civically engaged, to engage with um, 
uh, with institutions, community, um, and civic institutions um, within the context of, of doing things like voting, but also other s forms of political participation. And um, it sounds like um, you, you've, you've answered that question that there are these two threads that you just mentioned. Um, I guess kind of going back and forth because we've been going back and forth between you and Peter. I wonder if, if he wants to add any any other um, comments about that, about um, how how this condition of abandonment influences uh, attitudes about civic engagement. Sure, uh, and I just endorse what, what Amina said. I would add a couple of sort of different dimensions. Uh, if you think about when was the era of abandonment, uh, I would really say it probably went from the late 1960s until about 2010. Uh, and we're actually having to add one more subtle narrative on top of that. Uh, since about 2010, and really the entry of emergency management and bankruptcy, uh, these neighborhoods have really been targeted not for development, but for displacement. Right? So you have this sort of a decades-long notion of complete abandonment and neglect uh, from both political economic markets, uh, and while people may read about all this comeback about Detroit, it's, it's limited to no more than 7.2 miles of a city that is nearly 140 square miles in, in, in size. Uh, and they're not getting investment. And indeed, if the neighborhoods are not connected economically, as the claim that we're making, you can pour all the money you want downtown and it flows only out to the suburbs. It doesn't flow to the neighborhoods. What has happened in the neighborhoods at the same period uh, have been over 100,000 residences having their water shut off. Uh, what's happened in the neighborhoods has been over 100,000 uh, uh, homes being foreclosed for failure to pay taxes, taxes which are often unconstitutionally and illegally overassessed. Uh, what's happened in these neighborhoods after abandonment uh, is actually a housing crisis uh, where rents are skyrocketing and people don't have access to, to affordable housing. So from that perspective of abandonment and then targeted displacement, uh, you come up and ask them to register to vote, right? You come up and ask them to fill out the census. Uh, this notion of the civic ladder assumes that you have these political, economic, social institutions to ground that ladder in. The reality of abandonment is that ground has been displaced, right? That doesn't exist, and therefore you have to think about new approaches if you're having people to engage uh, civically, and it's got to start from very different premises than we normally project uh, uh, in urban areas. Right, so you're, you're referring to uh, a very common kind of uh, metaphor approach that's used in conventional civic engagement outreach, uh, lingo, the ladder of engagement, sort of the idea that, you know, you meet people where they are, maybe they're um, at the floor, uh, no engagement, maybe they're one or two rungs up, uh, and you work from where they are to, to get them to increase their levels of engagement, take on bigger responsibilities, bigger roles, and and it sounds to me like you're kind of saying that this condition of abandonment doesn't fit into that metaphor at all, um, that, that this is something qualitatively different and you can't, um, you can't work it in as though, oh, well, you know, maybe if uh, we encounter people in a position of abandonment, they're, they're in the basement. Um, but, but you're saying that doesn't really work. This is something different. Is that right? It, the, the house hasn't been built or the house has been destroyed. Right? And, and from that perspective... What you're really saying is in, in this notion of abandonment uh, and, and absence of uh, functioning American political and social institutions is you're really thinking, uh, if you want to engage people, you have to engage them around issues of self-help. Uh, you have to engage them around issues that actually meet their basic survival needs. Uh, you have to engage them around providing water uh, for households that don't have water, uh, providing decent education where there is no education, uh, providing housing when there's a housing crisis. 
Uh, and that's a very different environment than simply saying, I'm going to register you to vote. Uh, I'm going to give you this campaign brochure. Uh, you have to really envision a, a period of, of self-help and ideally in that era of self-help be building political education, political consciousness uh, that can lead to building political power, that can lead uh, to changing the policies that have inflicted the abandonment. And Amina, this this is uh, kind of some of the the work that you've been doing with the Detroit People's Platform. Is that is that right? Yes, that's um, that the work that we have been doing um, is trying to um, engage people in the democratic process and encourage uh, those in power to understand how to engage uh, people. And I would I actually want to go further than engage because the the language we use is empower. Um, we want to empower residents in the democratic process and empower resident participation and decision-making um, with our elected officials to understand how that should work in an environment that where there is a healthy democracy. Because as Peter stated earlier, um, you know, emergency management really was the, the removal of the democratic process in Detroit without any pretense. Uh, which took place in 2013. And that actually had an extreme chilling effect on citizen participation in our municipal democracy. Uh, we did have resident outcry. We did have, have civil disobedience. We did have resident participation to resist emergency management and to resist the decisions that were coming out of the emergency management process. And yet um, it proceeded as if residents uh, were not speaking out against it at all. All the decisions went forward and the emergency management um, process was carried out um, until it was completed, until it accomplished the goals that it was intended to. Um, that had an extreme chilling effect on residents who um, had been engaged in the political system in the city before, who had, who were from grassroots organizations and were used to organizing for power. Um, and this was just such a, um, a huge entity that completely wiped out the democratic process in the city and to come after that with the um as peter spoke about all of the issues that came after the water shutoffs the extreme housing crisis that we're facing right now with skyrocketing rents um all of that came afterwards and we we still actually continue to see resident engagement and participation um, and that examples of that would include the creation of the first, the nation's first community benefits ordinance, which came out of the people's platforms engagement with the Equitable Detroit Coalition, um, a grassroots group of organ organizations and residents who had been present um, in the resistance of emergency management. And we started to see the privatization of so many of our resources in the city and thought that a community benefits ordinance was one way that we could start to reclaim some resident power by creating an ordinance that mandated um, not only engagement but empowerment through negotiation and the actual provision of resources from the corporations that are coming into the city um, as part of, of revitalization. Um, we also saw it in the creation of the Inclusionary Zoning Ordinance and the Housing Trust Fund, which is another ordinance that was created um, with a coalition. Um, we do all our work through coalitions, which is extremely important because um, it is the way that uh, Detroiters have traditionally operated. Um, as I spoke about, the past history is coming together in communities, in neighborhoods, working together towards the common goal. Um, and yet, even with those wins, uh, the creation of these ordinances that are intended to um, to create resources where there aren't, to create housing, affordable housing where there isn't, to create um, 
money for the commons where there isn't through the CBO. We also continue to see the um, the philosophy of abandonment and disempowerment that is part and parcel of the fabric of our political system in the city. Um, the community benefits ordinance was created and put on the ballot for residents to participate in their democracy by voting um, as a ballot initiative if they wanted this ordinance uh, to be passed. And we see that the city administration created an opposing ballot initiative and placed it on the ballot at the same time um, that created a much weaker version of community benefits. Um, the same thing with the housing trust fund. We see that we get a fund for affordable housing and we, the city will not fund it adequately. And the city administration, um, several months after that, that law is passing, creates an opposing fund. Um, that lacks transparency, that lacks resident engagement, and starts to seek the private funding for that fund rather than um, seeing this fund as a resource, as a, a resource and a return to democracy where city resources are used in a way that benefit all residents and they have a say in it. So we see this pool, this constant pool where um, it is not a state of complete despair. Residents are still fighting, and yet we see that the administration is... Um, is very rooted in this this uh, pathology of austerity and abandonment, where even when residents are coming up with these um, these ways to redistribute democracy and redistribute resources, there's a, res- a great effort to resist it um, that exists in the city. Yeah. So it sounds like um, you you pulled out some mobilizations and some uh, initiatives where you have had great success in getting people to to show up and to work in coalition with one another um, despite this condition of abandonment. I wonder, besides uh, you mentioned the importance of of working in coalitions, um, if you had any other kinds of examples of what it is or how it was that you were able to have success despite um, the the circumstance um, that folks found themselves in. Um, and I and I ask this partially because I don't want people to walk away with with the takeaway of, oh well, you know what they were saying essentially is that if you solve a lot of these economic issues, then people will participate. So it's you know solve the economic and then the political participation will follow. I don't I don't think that that's uh, that's it. But I want to give you the opportunity to make sure that that you um, you clarify that. Um, I definitely think that uh, solving the economic strategies. Uh, solving the economic problem um, is important, but I think that um, the the spatial racism element and the fact that that is a, a, the foundation that abandonment rests on is really important. Um, it, it has to be the starting place for an economic uh, approach, for a political approach. Every approach has to look backwards at the racial inequalities uh, that created the situation in Detroit at the fact that the way our political um, systems and our economic systems are operating right now are are sitting on that foundation of racial inequality before we try to attempt solutions. Um, and so I don't think that simply solving the, attempting to solve the economic situation in a vacuum without looking at the past that created the situation and without looking at the present that is still very firmly rooted in that racial inequality um, would be successful. I don't think that those strategies would be successful in actually addressing the problems. Um, The traditional economic development strategies, therefore, don't work in Detroit. 
um, and that is the the lens that right now the administration and um, those in power are using to try to revitalize the city are are based in traditional economic development strategies, which look only at um, at the markets and getting the markets to function properly, and they are absolutely not paying attention to to racial justice, to racial equity, to the foundations of these problems. Um, we are looking at pouring money and resources into solutions like privatization that still don't work, um, into solutions like philanthropy, choosing winners and losers, um, into choosing winners and losers with neighborhoods and, and concentrating resources and wealth in certain areas because we we feel that racial inequality, and when I say we, I mean um, the individual elected officials and individuals that are making decisions in the city right now, they feel that racial inequality is not important. Um, residents are discouraged from talking about it, discouraged from bringing it up. It is not addressed. Um, the mayor is going to have a state of the city very soon. And when we talk about race in Detroit, we talk about successes. We talk about it as if it's been conquered, as if we're making you know, enormous strides and we don't actually look at the problem before we seek to say that it's, it's solved and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. I, I think it's actually a little bit even more perverse, as, as dire as that sounds. Uh, I agree with you, Josh, that we need to solve the economic problems. The problem is that our traditional approaches we've used for the last 50 years not only don't solve the economic problems, they actually have co-created the issues of abandonment. Right? So when we're looking to off-the-shelf solutions, we're actually making the problem worse in cities like Detroit and not better. And therefore, we have to be very intentional about building new economic markets and new political processes. And that's why I think you have to conjoin this notion of abandonment with a notion of anti-racist solutions. Uh, and in that light, you see the real important potential of an authentic community, community benefits ordinance that came out of Detroit and was advocated by the, the People's Platform and Equitable Detroit Coalition. Uh, there's an active water affordability plan that's been advocated in Detroit to solve water shutoffs. Uh, it won't be adopted in Detroit, but it has been adopted in Philadelphia. Uh, so you have this notion of, of perhaps abandonment, but you have tremendous innovation in Detroit. Uh, you have tremendous activity among a, a number of, of creative of, of activists, but you're going so far uphill and you're trying to actually create new economic and political processes uh, in the face of traditional systems that actually continually undermine us. I think that what Peter said is so important, that we, we cannot rest on traditional methods of trying to revitalize cities or trying to bring economic development to scale. Um, and in Detroit particularly, we see that because we know that, um, that there, there is exploitation and extraction that have been integral to success, uh, economic success outside, in, out, in other parts of the region outside of the city. And so when we look in the city to replicate that success, then we're looking to bring extraction and exploitation into the city just in a smaller scale. Yeah, the centrality of of racism and of um, what you the two of you have described um, as uh, well, Amina, you said a philosophy of abandonment. So I, I feel like that puts a strong point on the fact that um, this is this is strategic. Uh, this isn't uh, by accident, and it's uh, absolutely uh, you know unarguably racialized. Um, it, it kind of brings me to a last question that I wanted to pose to the two of you. Um, at the Haas Institute, as you both know, we talk a lot about bridging. 
and about striving to build bridges across socially recognized forms of difference um, by finding other commonalities or connections, shared experiences that can give rise to a bigger we, uh, a we in which everyone can participate and, and belong and feel that they belong. I, I, wonder, I wonder what each of you would say about whether um, there's a, any, any bridging opportunity here that you see. Um, we've been talking mostly about Detroit, which is a, a predominantly African-American um, city. Um, and um, it's, it's a city in which, as you've both described, um, there's, there's been uh, racialized abandonment, racialized attacks and extraction and exploitation. And um, I wonder if in this context you feel that, um, that there are ways in which folks from other communities outside of Detroit, uh, whether there are um, places that have similar experiences um, outside of Detroit in Michigan, um, whether there are opportunities for bridging that you see. I think, um, Peter, I, th I think you suggested to me that you thought there, there were. Um, so maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, and, and, and th this notion that's coming out of the Haas Institute about civic engagement and, and bridging is, is so important. Um, but as you know better than I do, it's not easy. Uh, and, and bridges have to be built on, on solid foundations. So I'll, I'll share my intuition. Uh, it's often commonly thought that, well, why don't just poor white folk and poor black folk uh, recognize the inequality they both suffer uh, and, and fight for common causes? And, and there's a, a superficial logic to that and persuasiveness. I think there has to be a separate political analysis within the, both the white and the black community first. And I think abandonment, particularly in the black community, of, of, of frames that. But I think similar analyses in the white community frame that. Uh, and that if they can go through that phase, right, of understanding the political forces that have created the disadvantage which they both suffer, then you have a greater possibility of bridging those differences. Because uh, then the bridge on each side is going to be built from a strong foundation. So I think what this calls us to do, as I said before, is, is, is reimagine the kinds of engagement that we are looking towards, uh, reimagine the fact that the change that we're trying to advocate for and, and, and build commonality around has to be transformative change. It can't just be integrating people into a burning building, uh, and that there have to be prerequisites to that. So at the end of the day, you can't fight for social justice in Detroit if you're not an optimist, despite the challenges. But you also have to be a realist. And I think what abandonment is sort of a wake-up call uh, that says, particularly in cities like Detroit, you probably have to go through a phase of self-help, self-analysis, and, 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 and political consciousness building to build political power uh, at the same time that you're trying to find allies uh, in different parts and, and certainly trying to build bridges. Okay, Amina, did, did you have any reflections that you wanted to offer on, on that question? I definitely think, uh, agree with what Peter has to say, um, and I believe that um, there has to be um, an acknowledgement of what the abandonment was, because right now we look at it as, um, as structural. Most people look at it as structural. We abandon the structures of the city, we abandon the schools, we abandon the buildings, the factories, um, but we really have to come to terms with um, and really dig into the abandonment of the people that there were a people who uh, it was determined by other people that they were expendable in the name of some greater, larger, more important success um, of other people. 
And so the decisions that were made were to abandon a population and the impact that that has beyond the buildings. And I think that when we look at the abandonment of the people, we start to get to some of those policies of economic development that actually address the people and not just buildings and not just businesses. Um, there's a really great quote by Audre Lorde um, that's really famous, and it's the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, but actually the rest of, of that writing, she goes on to say, um, that fact is only threatening to those who still define the master's house as their only source of support. Um, I think that's really important because as citizens start to reclaim reclaim power in these abandoned um, abandoned cities like Detroit, and I do believe that there are other situations of abandonment that occur on smaller scales in the inner ring suburbs and in rural areas, um, we as residents have to recognize that we are a vital support source of support for the movements that we need in order to dismantle the house. Um, so I think that the engagement comes from that self-reflection and internalizing the idea that um, the structures themselves are not the only support. We actually um, have the power to be our own support to reclaim the house. And that concludes this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guests from Detroit, Peter Hammer, who's a professor of law and the director of the Damon J. Keith Center for Civil Rights at Wayne State University Law School, and Amina Kirk, who is the senior legal and policy advocate and organizer with Detroit People's Platform. I'd also like to thank our guest host today, Josh Clark, who's my colleague here at the Haas Institute. And Josh works as a political participation analyst and researcher for the Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project. A transcript of this episode is available on our website at hawesinstitute.berkeley.edu forward slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. <laughs>